I'm Barbara Buchanan, and this is episode 10 of Tales from Weird Scotland. The stories told in Tales from Weird Scotland relate to the supernatural and may detail dark and distressing events from Scotland's past. For this reason, the podcasts are not recommended for listeners who may find such content upsetting. Is there anybody there? Our lives are filled with questions. In our search for answers, we observe, explore, research and experiment. But there is one question we may choose to avoid as being too big, too difficult or too unsettling to consider. What happens when we die? Is there life after death? Is there anybody there? There have always been those in society who exhibit exceptional talents and abilities to see beyond the day-to-day of human existence. Could the visions and experiences they report provide the link between this world and the next? Could we, or should we, employ the talents of an intermediary or medium to attempt to contact the dead? Would this help us, or them? The Bible is adamant that this should not be done and there was a reluctance to go against this. However, with the scientific advances, discoveries and inventions of the 19th century, sitting alongside high instances of infant mortality and limited life expectancy, the work of mediums became widely accepted in society. If electricity is real but cannot be seen, perhaps so is the spirit world. Modern spiritualism and communication with the dead began in the United States in 1848 when John Fox moved with his wife and six children into their new home in Hydesville, New York. Unexplained noises were heard in the house. Gradually, his two daughters, Margaret and Kate, became comfortable enough to interact with the noises, clapping their hands or snapping their fingers, which elicited rappings in response. They developed a simple code of communication. One rap for yes, two for no, and discovered that the author of the rappings was a dead peddler who had been buried below the house. News reports spread rapidly that this was finally proof of life after death. Within months, the girls were national celebrities and making public appearances. Despite tests which suggested they were making the noises themselves, these events led to an explosion of spiritualist activity in the USA, one of the first religions to become widespread through the actions of the mass media. The popularity of spiritualism did not diminish, even when Margaret confessed that their experiences had all been a hoax. One of the first mediums to achieve celebrity status was a Scot, Daniel Dunglass Hume, born in the village of Curry just outside Edinburgh in 1833, the third of the eight children of William and Betsy Hume. William, of a morose and aggressive disposition, was a paper mill worker, but there's good evidence to suggest he was the illegitimate son of Alexander, 10th Earl of Hume. Betsy was recognised as a seer, someone with second sight, 
the ability to foretell events or see what others cannot, a talent regarded as either a curse or a blessing, but well recognised in Scotland. Family life was far from happy and Daniel was taken to live with his mother's sister in Portobello on the far side of Edinburgh. And in the late 1830s, he moved with his aunt's family to New England. A solitary child of a nervous disposition, he would later record that his cradle would rock on its own and that he had visions of the death of family and friends. One such was his only school friend, Edwin, with whom he made a pact that if one died, the other would try to make contact. They lost touch when Daniel's family moved 150 miles away. Then one day, Daniel saw a brightly lit vision of his friend standing at the foot of his bed. The figure then turned three circles in the air and disappeared. Daniel was convinced his friend had died. Edwin's death three days before the vision was confirmed shortly afterwards. Daniel also reported a vision of his mother saying, Dan, 12 o'clock, a premonition of the time of her death. Rapping and knocking began to disturb the family home. Daniel believed this to be a gift from God, but church ministers thought he was possessed by the devil. Complaints from the neighbours about the goings-on resulted in Daniel being told to leave the house. Is it coincidence that knocking and rappings were heard in his home, so soon after the publicity about similar events in the Fox household? Daniel felt his mission was to demonstrate immortality and held his first séance at the age of 17. Séances were generally held in darkened rooms where only his white hands would be visible. One of the regular features of these events was the moving of the table around which the sitters gathered, even when the tables were weighted down with five men. Tremendous phosphorescent light would gleam on the walls and sitters might feel the touch of a spirit hand and hear the sounds of the sea. He was also reported to levitate above the ground. Although he claimed shyness, his fame grew and he moved to New York where he carried out up to seven seances a day. These were attended by believers, sceptics and those in search of entertainment, some from the highest ranks of society. Amongst these was the renowned novelist William Makepeace Thackeray, who dismissed the experience as dire humbug. In the face of increasing scepticism and scrutiny, Daniel returned to Britain at the age of 22. Settling in London, he began to conduct seances which would again divide opinion. The Scottish social reformer Robert Owen introduced him to many prominent people who were intrigued enough to attend. The poet Robert Browning described the séances as cheat and imposture, which set him at odds with his wife Elizabeth Barrett Browning, who believed the phenomena were genuine. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the Edinburgh-born creator of the world's first and most famous consulting detective, Sherlock Holmes, was a staunch supporter. His fascination with all things spirit and fae is deserving of a podcast on its own, and we hope to look into his beliefs as a separate topic in the near future. He described Daniel as unusual amongst mediums in that he had a direct voice which would let the spirits audibly speak, he was a trance speaker, letting the spirits speak through him, had clairvoyance, having the ability to see things which were out of view, and was a physical medium with the ability to move objects. In Conan Doyle's view, Daniel was without equal. 
But others would see him as a clever fraud, allowing no precautions against trickery. He would work in low light, choose which sitters would be directly next to him, perhaps the least sceptical, and have them hold hands to keep them together. He could use phosphorescent oil for visual effect, sculpt, and he was a talented sculptor, or otherwise create fake spirit hands and use his feet and hands to touch sitters. Robert Browning reported catching Daniel's foot during a séance. To play accordion music, which was said to be performed by a spirit, he may have used a miniature mouth organ. It was noted the spirit was not a proficient musician, knowing only two tunes, Home Sweet Home and The Last Rose of Summer, both melodies fitting into one octave. His famous levitations could be explained, it was said, by a magic trick known as the Balducci illusion, which required the illusionist to adopt a stretching technique. Given Daniel's tall height and slight frame, he could have become proficient in it. His greatest reported levitation, which saw him apparently float out of a third-floor window above the street and in through another, was so differently reported by the four attendees, it is impossible to know if the levitation was genuine or a simple trick of jumping from ledge to ledge, with or without ropes. Daniel is even reported as having held a séance for the French Emperor Napoleon III and his wife the Empress, where the Empress believed she was being touched by the hand of her dead child. An observer in the room stepped in to prove it a fraud. Daniel was ordered away, but as another order was given to keep the matter secret, presumably to protect the royal reputation, this remained shrouded in mystery. He was caught out as using tricks on several occasions, but he was never publicly exposed as a fraud. Conjurers and scientists were asked to objectively observe some seances, but they could not decide whether this was trickery or not. Daniel was unquestionably good at what he did. He died at the age of 53. He was said never to ask for money for his seances, but he lived well on donations and being housed by supporters. He was described by his biographer as being one of the most conspicuous and lauded of his type and generation and one of the most famous men of his era. The extraordinary illusionist Harry Houdini, who spent some considerable effort in debunking many widely held beliefs on the supernatural, described him as the forerunner of the medium whose forte is fleecing by presuming the credulity of the public. The first spiritualist church opened in Britain in Keithley in Yorkshire in 1853, with the first spiritualist meetings in Edinburgh being held from 1873. Despite condemnation by the Roman Catholic Church, spiritualism continued to have dedicated followers into the 20th century. But it was the terrible loss of life on the battlefields of the First World War which led to a steep rise in interest. In the 1920s and 30s, there were about 250,000 practising spiritualists in Britain, with many more seeking solace for their loss by attending séances in the hope of receiving some personal message from beyond the grave. Helen Duncan was the most infamous medium of the 20th century. Born Victoria Helen McRae on the 25th of November 1897 in the small Perthshire town of Callender, her father was a cabinet maker in Slater and her mother a housewife an ordinary family with no hint of psychic powers. 
From an early age, Helen, as she was known, displayed a gift for telling the fortunes of her fellow pupils in the school playground. When she heard of Helen causing fear and alarm with dark predictions and dramatic behaviour, her mother, a devout Presbyterian who would have no truck with what she felt was blasphemy, dragged her daughter to the local church, presumably for a telling off by a stern-faced minister. In 1916, Helen married Henry Duncan, a wounded war veteran, who would support her in her spiritual career, encouraging her to read tea leaves and tell fortunes. Easier money than her other work in a bleach factory. Helen would become pregnant 12 times, though only six children survived. There can be no doubt of her understanding of the emotional pain of those who attended her seances, hoping for a message from a departed loved one. Within 10 years, Helen had developed her talents from her youthful clairvoyance to become a physical medium, ministering in a network of spiritual churches and conducting seances in private homes the scene would be set for the séance in a darkened room, and Helen, dressed in black, would appear to fall into a trance. The voices of her spirit guides and the spirits themselves would be heard. Spirits would materialise in the form of ectoplasm, a white material emitting from her mouth. These spirits could talk and even touch the sitters who would pay to attend, providing the Duncan family with a living. Needless to say, there were many who suspected fraud. In 1928, the photographer Henry Metcalf attended a séance in Helen's home and took flash photographs of the ectoplasm and her spirit guide, Peggy. On close examination of the photos, Peggy appeared to be a doll with a papier-mâché face and draped in a sheet. Some three years later, the London Spiritual Alliance carried out an examination and found the ectoplasm to be cheesecloth, a mixture of egg white and toilet paper stuck together. As ectoplasm always manifested as white, they had Helen swallow a tablet of methylene blue, which would have turned the ectoplasm blue had it not been genuine. Unsurprisingly, the spirits did not cooperate on that occasion and no ectoplasm was forthcoming. The conclusion of the examination was that Helen swallowed the cheesecloth before the seances, regurgitating it at the appropriate moment. She was also rather prone to nosebleeds, which led to the thought that she stored material in her nasal cavities. The renowned psychic researcher and sceptic Harry Price paid Helen the substantial sum of £50 to observe a series of seances. At séance number four, when he asked to x-ray her, Helen became hysterical and in full medium gear of black sateen, rushed into the street, landing a good punch on her husband on the way. She was a large woman, weighing around 17 stone. She grabbed onto the railings and screamed. The police became involved and she was eventually returned to the laboratory where she demanded to be x-rayed. Price immediately guessed that a sleight of hand had been carried out with the cheesecloth and asked her husband to turn out his pockets. He refused. Another seance was arranged and this time a piece of the ectoplasm was grabbed. Analysis showed it again to be cheesecloth. Price would comment, could anything be more infantile than a group of grown-up men wasting time, money and energy on the antics of a fat female crook? Helen finally fell foul of the law in 1933 when she was convicted in Edinburgh Sheriff Court of a fray and of being a fraudulent medium. 
she was sentenced to a month in prison or a £10 fine when one of the sitters at a seance had grabbed the spirit guide Peggy only to find it was a stocking at best and called the police. So far, so fake, we are now convinced that Helen is a fraud. But matters were to take a rather strange turn in 1941, two years into the Second World War. The Duncans were now living in Portsmouth, the home port of the Royal Navy. At one of her seances, a spirit purporting to be a dead sailor called Sid manifested wearing a cap bearing the name of the ship HMS Barham. He announced the sinking of the ship with great loss of life. The ship had indeed been torpedoed by a U-boat off the coast of Egypt with a loss of 862 men, a third of the crew. But this had not been then publicly announced. Only the families had been informed in the strictest confidence. The secret was to be kept to fool the enemy and preserve public morale. The Navy began to take an interest in Helen's activities. Was she genuine or was it evidence of a breach of security? Either way, this could be a problem. To use a wartime expression, loose lips sink ships. In 1944, a naval lieutenant attended a séance. Helen announced a white-clad figure behind a curtain was his deceased aunt, when he had no deceased aunt, and later declared a different figure was his dead sister, when he knew she was very much in the land of the living. He reported Helen to the police, and when she tried a similar trick at a séance a few days later, the figure proving to be Helen herself, she was arrested. Initially, she was charged under the Vagrancy Act of 1824, which was used at the time to handle minor offences regarding fortune-telling, astrology and spiritualism, which would be dealt with in the Magistrates' Court. However, the authorities took a more serious view on how this matter should proceed, and Helen was charged on formal indictment and tried at the Old Bailey in London under the Witchcraft Act of 1735. Under the Act, a person was guilty of an offence if he or she acted as a spiritualistic medium with intent to deceive, including using any fraudulent device, if it was proved that the act was for a reward, reward being money or something else of value given to that person or to anyone else. She was also charged under the Larceny Act for taking money by falsely pretending that she was in a position to bring about the appearances of the spirits of deceased persons. And she was further charged with common law offences of public mischief. They threw the book at her. Given Helen's activities, it seemed there was only one outcome unless she could prove she was genuine. Her defence announced she was prepared to demonstrate her abilities from the witness box which amounted to conducting a séance in court in a state of trance. It's hardly surprising that this offer was refused. At the end of her seven-day trial, Helen was convicted under the Witchcraft Act and sentenced to nine months in jail, which she would serve in Holloway Prison. Her response to the sentence was to cry out, I have done nothing! Is there a God? She was denied the right to appeal. It was the manifesting of the dead sailor of HMS Barham, often seen as evidence of her psychic abilities, which would lead to the prosecution. 
Was this a genuine manifestation? Given the number aboard the ship and the number of family members who would have been aware of the tragedy, estimated at about 9,000 people, it is entirely possible that Helen had inadvertently heard about it, allowing her what could be described as a bit of a coup. A hatband with HMS Barham on it was found in her possession, further evidence of a fraud. Named hatbands for different ships had been discontinued early in the war and replaced with the letters HMS as a cost-saving exercise. Apparently, Helen was not aware of this. Why did the authorities take such a strong line? It's been put forward that they were afraid she might reveal details of the imminent D-Day landings. If so, were some not quite as sceptical of her powers as they appeared to be? One person of note was unimpressed with the charge and wrote to the Home Secretary, calling it all obsolete tomfoolery. His name was Winston Churchill. Helen had come to the attention of the Prime Minister. Although Helen had decided not to carry out any more seances, she was in the middle of one in Nottingham in 1956 when it was raided by the police who were suspicious of fraudulent activity. She was not prosecuted, but Helen was roused from a trance-like state which is said to be dangerous to the medium, and there were those who blamed this for her death a few weeks later. As she was convicted under the Witchcraft Act, she has become known as Hellish Nell, the Last Witch. She was never a witch, and the Witchcraft Act stopped the prosecution for witchcraft, but the nickname was too good a one to miss. If she were to be prosecuted today, it would be under the Consumer Protection for Unfair Trading Regulations 2008, which can hardly be described as catchy. Daniel, there seems little doubt, had some psychic powers. He was the son of a seer after all. The vision of his dead friend before he could have known of his death seems compelling. But did he crave attention and validation after an unhappy and disjointed childhood to make more of any powers he did possess, enhancing them by trickery? Starting his career at a time when spiritualism was becoming fashionable was fortunate timing. Living by the donations of wealthy patrons would have been a world away from the paper mill worker's cottage in Curry and an incentive to create ever more outrageous stunts to retain their interest and his status. Helen's is a different story. Playground fortune-telling and reading tea leaves might be a bit of fun, but communicating with the dead is something else entirely. She might have had the ability to read people and a desire to help them deal with loss, not to let them down, using tricks when her psychic abilities were insufficient. But there was a living to be made. Her husband seemed to have an eye for the money this trade could bring, encouraging her endeavours. He would eventually confess that he had enabled her to create the illusions. For illusions, they were. A section of ectoplasm emitting from Helen's body is in the ownership of the University of Cambridge and is a piece of artificial silk she had advanced from egg white and toilet paper. But did she deserve what happened to her? Those who feel she was too harshly treated have tried to have her pardoned, and there have been three petitions to the Scottish Parliament on the matter all to no avail. Photographs of her in a trance state, complete with ectoplasm, still exist, as do recordings of her seances. A bust of Helen is on display in an art gallery in Stirling, 
and it is planned to name a street after her in Calendar. So she has an afterlife of sorts. But do our medium stories bring us any closer to answering the big question? Is there life after death? Is there anybody there? Do you believe? One rap for yes, two for no. That was Barbara Buchanan. This episode was written by Barbara Buchanan. And it was produced and radiophonically designed by me, Nick Cole Hamilton. If you're enjoying Tales from Weird Scotland, please feel free to like, share and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. And you can find our tangential ramblings on Twitter by following at Tales Weird. Weird spelt W-Y-R-D. This is a You Better Run Media production. Join us again soon for more Tales from Weird Scotland.